0: listeners, quick favor, if you're into what you're hearing here week after week, please consider giving us a glowing review on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Thank you. All right, this week on Episode 6 of The Hidden World, I am talking to my friend Corinne Van Bleet about what it's like to learn to listen to yourself. To try to live from the hidden world of soul instead of conforming to the path someone else lays out for you. Corinne is a television writer with co-writing credits on season two of Hulu's hit show Castle Rock, but more important than her growing resume of traditional accolades, Corinne is one of the more courageous people I know. Yet, and this is really important, Corinne is courageous precisely because she is willing not to know what comes next. In order to endure that kind of not knowing with its anxiety and vulnerability, you have to learn to follow the path or the compass. That's that's a hidden one something inside yourself that says yes and no sometimes in non-rational non-traditional ways which means that if you're going to walk that path sometimes you can also feel a bit lonely I'm so excited to share Corinne with you today and for all of you to hear how she's done that so graciously Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. You are one of the only people in my life that that I personally um, have a friendship with that has really laid it all on the line to pursue your dreams. And I, I mean to phrase it exactly that way. <laughs> and I wanna to talk to you about what allowed you to get to that point where you were willing to do that. And then also what it's been like. Okay. So you can start anywhere.
1: Oh my God. Uh, I mean, you have to have some level of what's the right word like some level of disconnection from reality to be honest um i think you have to have some or for me i had I i guess i don't even know where to start like i worked in the corporate world i was groomed to go into business and also, find the man you're going to marry while you're in college, uh, and to no longer be on your parents' dime, to switch over to being on a man's dime. And it's not spoken. You know, this is something I uh, you hear about the MRS degree. So, that, you know, it's a concept, but it's definitely not something that your parents are like, "Okay, now you're going to go to college, you're going to meet a man," but but it is what is modeled to you. Exactly. Yeah. So my mom went to college and also got her master's in education. So she's, you know, a bright, smart woman, um, but only taught until she had kids. So it was like the, I call it the yellow brick road. You know, you go to college, you get married You buy a house, you have kids, Um, and that's what was modeled. So that's exactly what was modeled. Um, So I went to school for business, and I got really interested in psychology, and I was told that if I switched my major, my education would no longer be financed. And as someone who didn't grow up believing that she could make her own living by design, I feel like, uh, you know, part of that modeling, uh, is that you're sort of reliant on others to an extent. And so that's something I've had to come out of, but, uh, to the thought of having student loan, like having debt, I was like, why would I do that? I have to stay on this path. So I majored in business. I got the, you know, Uh, not right away, but eventually got like the good corporate job that makes the parents happy and makes you the right amount of money. You have all the good benefits. You have all the things that you get, or I will speak for myself, that I got scared into thinking I had to have. Now, everybody wants health insurance. So it's not a wild outlandish thing to to, I say buy into, but to be working toward, you know, it's stability is a very real thing. And I think that's why I said a disconnection from reality is almost necessary to just go for what you want rather than, it's like a balance between the fear and the bravery and the courage. Uh, And the younger you are, I think the more the courage can win out. Because at the age I'm at now, I'm like, okay, I have health, you know, I have the basics, but I don't have, uh, I'm not sure I want to share my exact age, but, you know, I don't have the decade or whatever of experience in, in a field that makes me like, you know, somewhat of an expert or a a go-to person. You know, so anyway, so business degree, worked in the corporate world, did the shoulds, lived by the book and drank all the time and was really unhappy for myself. It wasn't about, you know, that system is not right for anyone else. But for me, I just felt like really empty, no purpose. And I worked in a corporate high-rise in downtown Chicago and like took the train to work and you know it was a cool life it was there was nothing wrong with it but I was living for the for happy hour and for the weekend and then Sunday night you just like dread Monday and having to start a whole week and I was like this is just not the life I want so I wasn't fully aware until I left my job Uh, like physically got on my bike leaving my job in Chicago one night to go play volleyball on the beach. So like, I have nothing to complain about. But I fell off my bike. And the physicality of skidding across the concrete, like, jolted me awake. And I've Mm. come to this, like, realization of how impactful that moment was years later. But it really did shift me because I almost immediately like started applying to grad school to be a therapist uh, and left my corporate job actually shifted to working part-time because I freaked out about like what it would mean to fully quit,
0: Uh, but started grad school. Do you have any idea why falling off your bike jolted you awake what happened in that moment or in the aftermath that made you kind of say enough's enough i can't do this anymore i still don't
1: have like intellectual clarity Mm. i can't i can't like explain it it just was a core shaker Mm. I don't know. Like I rode my bike, like, so there was a construction worker nearby and he came and like scooped me up, like in the movies and put me on the back of a pickup truck and like got his first aid kit and nursed my wounds. And Mm. it was really, it was still light out. So like the sun was setting. So it was like right there, Mm. like the light. I don't know. I just, it's one of those moments that I'm, you, you can't, like I'm a writer, I can't write that. I mean, I can now because I lived it, but I couldn't make it up. Like it was so surreal, mm-hmm. um, and I was like, "Thanks," and like let him bandage me just a certain amount, and then rode my bike home crying um, the whole way home, and was just like, "I have to take care of this myself." Like so, a lot of the I think beliefs that I had about like who I had to be just mm-hmm. kind of got rocked or something.
0: I don't know. I can't explain it and then but it was a turning point and it was the point that you decided I don't know what next but not this exactly exactly and so what did you do next
1: so oddly I my roommate at the time had like painting supplies and I painted this painting I don't know like uh, I had never done anything really artistic before, um, and I just painted this thing and it makes total sense to me, but it looks like nothing mm. uh, and then I poured rubbing alcohol like on my wounds and you know cried and you know did the whole thing. but in my life, next, I uh, started looking well, I guess I started soul searching you know like what would make me happy
0: it 's incredible to me that painted it it strikes me as maybe unconsciously what was going on in that corporate pressure system somehow got as you as you said like you're it was a core shaking you got really shooken up something got shaken loose and it's it still was so largely unconscious that there was no way to be with it or relate to it other than through affect like crying mm-hmm. and art or image making just these non-rational expressions of what was happening because it was right. an it was a non-rational shift it didn't have any intellectual or cognitive scaffolding yet.
1: So everything I had been taught was not useful in this moment it was like I was seeing other mm, wow you know uh, I moved a lot as a kid so I had um, you know a, a new house a new bedroom a new s- school a new set of friends um, I played sports so like new teammates so everything changed but this was like something I had never seen like whatever I was seeing like third eye you know
0: The third eye in many spiritual traditions in the east refers to the gate, the figurative gate, that leads to the inner realms and spaces of higher consciousness. It is a mystical or esoteric concept, and it corresponds with the chakra or energy center located in the center of the forehead. It is an invisible eye or a speculative eye. It's the idea that maybe this non-rational sight, this non-rational way of knowing and understanding that we can't order so clearly with language or support with visible, tangible data exists in the person and perhaps can be attuned to or tapped into in the energy center located in the middle of the forehead. The Buddhists regard the third eye as the eye of consciousness representing the vantage point from which enlightenment beyond one's physical sight, beyond the five senses, is achieved.
1: Whatever I was seeing like was so brand new and like vivid and colorful and the painting is like vivid bright colors Mm. and was so drawn to whatever this was yet had no language for it so yeah
0: wow think about it often these days and and then you know because i know a lot of your story, I know that the next thing you did was, was start looking for graduate school, for, for master's programs in psychology. Yeah. I, I almost wonder if one of the unconscious impulses that um, came forth to aid you was an, a desire or a need to start to understand as a as a bridge, yes. You know, as a bridge builder to whatever was, was out there for you. First, you needed to equip yourself with understanding that I think, God, so much of the time can only be found in psychology grad school. <laughs> yeah. How else? I mean, I guess you could read a bunch of books on your own, and and that might take you pretty far. But, you know, you and I went to grad school around the same time, and. I I was always struck by how many of us were there to try to understand ourselves, our lives, our families, our relationships, our, our friends, the world, people, our traumas. Yes. It's what pulls you in. I think more so than really wanting to help people. (laughs) Well, and
1: I think it is clouded for me in wanting in the, rationale of I want to help people like Mm -hmm. I don't want other people to get to this point in their lives Mm -hmm. without uh, waking up or however you want to conceptualize it so it that was there but it was once I started grad school I was like oh I'm so curious about myself Mm -hmm. and my family and uh, my friendships and Mm
0: -hmm. what why I do what I do why I am I am Yes. Who can I blame for all of this shit that <laughs> happened? No, but
1: but uh, sort of teasing everything out to identify the roots of why, like you said, why I do what I do. Why do I keep coming like into the same cul-de-sac <laughs> and having the same issues with you know, with different people? Uh, yes, and I think about. Uh, you, Megan, and me, only one of the three of us is a practicing psychologist. So I find that to be really interesting, too, of how many people complete the two-year education or whatever it is. I know for us, it was two years. And, and that is enough in itself.
0: Yeah, I know. Um, actually, I am one of only a handful of people I know from my graduating Um, cohort that is practicing which is really interesting it's a very expensive way to figure out how you I
1: sometimes think like does are are the costs of grad school more than having therapy like every day or (laughs) having therapy every
0: day (laughs) end up being more beneficial but uh, actually I do think (sighs) that sometimes liberation, it comes at quite a cost. And the way that you pay that price can be different, right? So Mm -hmm. you can stay unconscious and you can keep living out your pain or your addictions or your, you know, uh, you know, abusive dynamics with yourself and others, which is too high of a price in my opinion agreed um or you can I don't I don't know maybe you can do a lot of intensive therapy and have some transformational experiences that way um but that costs money and time um and you know even if you have great insurance and you don't go to grad school or you get or you do and you have a scholarship the you you pay a price in your relationships because they change when you change the healthier you get the less um you can participate in in the things that are harmful and there's there's a loss of connection sometimes with people that you really really value actually
1: yep
0: um Or, you know, once in a while, I think, gosh, I wish I could just have a year of unconscious living.
1: Um, They sometimes would be super cool. Yeah. Given our current climate. Yeah. It is easier to stay asleep, unconscious, um, unaware, whatever you want to call it. Of course, it's so much easier. It's definitely easier to stay on the path that was presented to you and not really
0: create waves, I guess, too. I don't know if it's easier. Um, mm. I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't claim to understand what it feels like for everyone else, you know? Um, I know for me it was easier when I was when you were in it well but I say that but then I was so unhappy so yeah. yeah actually same I mean I I tried to um, like you said it's not spoken but I tried to do the thing I thought I was supposed to do which was I think similar to what you thought you were supposed to do. And I don't really blame my my parents for that at all. I think it's what the culture dictates. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't because I was so miserable. I couldn't pretzel myself into the version of a woman I understood I needed to be in order to Attract the type of man that I was, I don't know, supposed to then rely on for my position in society or something, you know? Yeah. I I just, that was a toxic nightmare for me to try. Yeah. Let's kind of come back to, um, so you went, so you applied, you said the um, graduate program chose you and you yeah. started at Loyola Chicago Wynn?
1: Uh, in August of 20 of, wait, 2009. 2009.
0: And then, and then what happened? What was school like? What happened to you?
1: um what happened to me I opened up and life was then perfect and all my problems were solved no I uh (laughs) I had an internship that I did not enjoy and I sought out another one and pleaded my case with the people at Loyola and switched so I had two different internships my first year uh which was not the norm, most people stay at one the whole year. So that was like disruptive and repeating my patterns of moving and, uh, you know. And since I was in grad school, I could identify those things more than I would have otherwise. But second year, I knew I wanted to, my second year internship to be uh, working with recovering addicts, alcoholics, and um, I Loyola had never placed someone at Hazelden before, which is now Hazelden Betty Ford uh, in Chicago. And I did research on it. And it's very prestigious. So all of my upbringing of like, go to the best, be the best, you know, uh, I wanted like I had my mind set on Hazelden. So I contacted everyone there whose information I could get. And told them why I'd be the best intern ever. And, you know, still had so much of that business mentality going into it. But I got the internship in the women's program. And then I met a little oh, beautiful snowflake creature named Megan Doyle Dawson. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in the men's program. She was the intern at the men's program. So we had overlapping uh, groups on Fridays with all the clients and we gradually talked and went and had drinks one day, which the irony, we're like, oh, we're having a drink when we're helping people not drink. Uh, so this was a little naughty. Um, but she, and then I don't even remember the first time I met you, but through Meg and I met you and I went to your bridal shower and we had, like, <laughs> sorry, not bridal shower, bachelorette party. And we had like the time of our lives. And I just remember being like, oh, wow, these friendships have, all the layers, or, or layers, which, not that I hadn't experienced that before, but it was just this whole new depth and being there for people. Uh, and the conversations you have go to a deeper place than I had really experienced before. So I felt like I had these two people who saw me and accepted me, like no matter what I said or did, it was curiosity more than judgment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I could explore rather
0: than fear. Pretend. What? Rather than pretend.
1: Rather than pretend, rather than kind of everyone, or I guess the way I saw it was keeping up with the Joneses more so, you know, like, competitive with friends and not in a malicious way but you it was just sort of there that you you know the three of us weren't like I'm going to be the best therapist no I'm like that's so so silly but I think I had residual of that so being able to exist in the in our you know our little like group of three which was bigger than three, but there was something about the three uh, for me. Um, so I worked at Hazelden and I, it was my everything. Like I, I just loved it and did well at something that I cared about and thought I would work there after graduation and uh they didn't have a job open when I finished, and Megan and I went to lunch with the director, and he's so—he's no longer there, but he's awesome. And uh, you know, he said he would keep us both in mind for jobs, but I was too like eager to get going, I guess. And in the meantime, I had gone back to St. Louis for the holidays, where my parents still lived at the time, and reunited with some college people, and had like a wild, crazy, fun night and decided to come visit some of those people, go visit uh, some of those people in LA over my like spring break. And I just fell in love with Los Angeles, uh, the beach, the mountains, the fast pace, the um, weather, obviously, all the beautiful things and decided to move out here and came out and came back at a later time and got a job and found an apartment and moved like just didn't really have conversations with people about like here's what I'm doing and you know I'm gonna plan it out and be really smart about money I just kind of went
0: I remember (laughs) it was a whirlwind
1: it was a whirlwind
0: in an impressive way I was kind of um stunned at at the um, knowing that's what it felt like you knew and so you trusted that you you trusted that you could trust yourself <laughs> it's funny that you
1: say that because i think i trusted myself but that's why i say the disconnection from reality in a sense too like i keep going back to that I think I trusted myself more then than I do now and I don't know if that's age I don't know if that's being tossed around by you know a competitive industry I don't know but I think it was also a continuation of the patterns of oh I've been in this for a few years it's time to go like that every three to four years of my childhood I moved so it was like just when you start to get used to something and settle in, it's time to rip the bandit off and go somewhere else. So it was a little bit of uh, discomfort in life, in existing in life.
0: Mm. You don't do that anymore, though. You
1: haven't left L.A. I haven't left L.A. I have been here nine years. And I've been with the same person for three years. And that's my longest relationship. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I still.
0: Pursuing the current um, career that you have for what, eight, seven, eight years? Like five, like, so officially
1: probably six. Like I've worked in TV for, since the end of 2014. So like five years well actually
0: it's almost the end of 2020 so six years okay <laughs> <Now when laughs> no one likes a math nerd i got it
1: i, I just am so bad about six years
0: yeah um okay but let's back up so you made it out to la and at first you pursued a job in mental health care yes system. so i worked TV writing.
1: Yes, yes, sorry.
0: Um, yeah, so I worked
1: at an inpatient treatment center in Venice, California. Which, like, if you are trying to not engage in destructive behaviors that include drugs and sex or what, whatever your, uh, and a, a lot of these women. It was a women's facility. A lot of these women were still like under the control of their parents, um, meaning like legally and financially and living in their homes and such like that. These parents were sending their young, early 20s daughters to Venice, California to get sober. Like it, it and, and in this particular facility, everyone had co-occurring, so co-occurring, uh, so all of them were uh, addicted to something, identified, diagnosed, addicted to something and also either had uh, a mental illness diagnosis or uh, an eating disorder. Um, So a lot of self-harm, a lot of keeping these women from purging after meals, uh, a lot of just survival mode, keeping 10 women alive at one time Mm -hmm. for two people working at a time. So it was crazy. It was not, and I don't mean crazy as we say it in the world. It was really, really hard to watch these women feel like no one cared about them and what that did in their lives. Right. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a couple of years and played beach volleyball all the time, as much as I could. And then still didn't feel fulfilled in the ways that i thought grad school and working helping other people through addiction because i luckily didn't progress to addiction with alcohol or other drugs that i tried and so i felt a real like empathy for people who wanted to escape and then who became addicted so it was this real hard moment of being so far away from everyone. I only knew a few people out here who I had known before I moved out here. And ironically enough, they all drank and did a lot of drugs. Uh, So it wasn't really the environment that I was living in already. So anyway, uh, I started freelance writing on the side and built up like a book of business working with different rehabs in California writing like their website content and then like marketing materials using keywords that like SEO so that people would click and be linked to their rehab facility so i wrote articles on like Lamar Odom and all kinds of all kinds of stuff And I loved it, I got to play beach volleyball anytime anyone else was playing and I got to make my own schedule and write my articles. And so I quit my job at the treatment center and lived a very minimal life, like didn't really uh, have to be anywhere at any time.
0: I remember this part of your journey so well because I remember you saying, "I." I can't work at this treatment facility anymore. It is bad for me. Mm -hmm. And I am willing to make very little money in order to be psychologically well. And I can survive on X. I can do it. I know I can. And you did. And I would like you to describe what that looked like because I think it is radical and inspiring. Truly. Thank you. I will say
1: that I did not know what the 99 cent store was until then. Like, obviously, you know, the dollar store and everything, but in California, in Los Angeles, the 99 cent store is a huge building with everything you can imagine and everything. I mean, some stuff is 299 or whatever, but pretty much everything is 99 cents. Like, uh, So when I was doing this, I was living in what was called a bachelor apartment. There's not a kitchen in a bachelor apartment. So I had to get really creative. Uh, So as someone who also contemplated a career in nutrition, like as a nutritionist, because I Became a vegetarian uh, in um, early 2008. I just remember because it was St. Patrick's Day. It's the only reason I remember like the time. But uh, so I ate in, in this bachelor apartment. Mind you, one block off the beach, like one block off the sand, I lived. And I thought it was everything. And I played, paid close to $1,000 for literally a shoebox just because it was by the beach. It, wow. It's... Uh, so most of my money at the time went to living expenses as is true for a lot of people. Uh, but the 99 cent store was my source of everything for the most part. Luckily they have like avocados and spinach and celery, like it's California, but there's all fresh produce at the 99 cent store. So I survived on like a lot of raw food, um, like instant coffee Uh, I had a microwave that I had to like plead with the landlord to give me because I was like I'm not spending money on a microwave right now I'm just that's I'm not interested in owning a a microwave I don't even believe in microwaves but I had to Uh, I was gonna get a hot plate but I think it was in my lease that I couldn't because of the fire hazard because there's no anyway but I had a sliding glass door that went out to a patio I could feel the beach air Uh, I wore every sweater so much more than I am now in the winter here because I live not by the beach anymore but it was the hardest but also I was the happiest like it was the happiest hardest time because I was doing it for myself and the sacrifice felt like I didn't even know yet that I wanted to write for tv I didn't know what I was moving toward but I knew what I was letting go of was worth eating you know a heated up can of refried beans for dinner and an avocado
0: that's so beautiful what you just said (laughs) that you didn't you didn't know what you were moving toward but you knew what you were letting go of was worth the price you were paying it's it is more clear-sighted than it probably appears from the outside.
1: Mm-hmm. And it
0: is so courageous to me. Thanks. Yeah. So then remind me how you, because you were freelance writing, mm-hmm. but not for TV yet. When did you figure out that it was TV you wanted, you wanted to write for TV? So
1: in this building I lived in, it was, such an odd collection of people, like across the hall from me, there was a a grown son living with his mother and these two giant, giant hairy dogs, like dogs I had never seen before. I don't even know what they are to this day. Their hair was six inches long and it was everywhere in our building. Right. So I was across from that. So, and they lived in a bachelor apartment together too. So it was like this, such a, 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 Like I didn't, I didn't know people like that before I didn't know like, so just this building of people, I was so curious to get to know. And because of my schedule and a lot of people who worked there worked for this bar and restaurant that owned the building. So a lot of people were bartenders or servers, so they had weird hours too. So we would have these interesting interactions, you know, like coming back from the beach at sunset Getting back to the door at the same time having just these little conversations or being in the laundry room because we had laundry we had like communal laundry and there were only like eight or ten units in the building but one of the units was uh this woman lauren who owned an acting studio with a partner of hers a comedy acting studio and she and i got to know each other and we like just chilled out eventually we would go to costco together and keep all the groceries at her house cuz she had a one bedroom apartment that had like a proper kitchen <laughs> downstairs and i had a key to her place and i would like come in and cook dinner there when she was leaving work so i was like the wife a little bit it was it's really interesting to think about but she would come home and i would have dinner you know we would open a bottle of wine and watch the shows that we both liked and she would she knew i was writing obviously we talked about our lives and everything and she was like, Corinne, I wonder if you could be a TV writer. Like, I, I just get the vibes from you. Uh, you know, you you keep weird hours, you say weird things. <laughs> and just like, I don't know, you might be, you know, she had gotten to know a lot of writers through um, owning an acting studio. So she, anyway, she started giving me like the episodes of Blackish and Modern Family that were being produced that week. You know, she would be up on them because her students would audition. And I was just reading everything, reading everything. And so I just started trying to write a script, like a comedy, silly script sort of about like the people in our building and around Venice. You know, because when you live right by the beach, it's a kooky collection of people. Uh, Never the same day twice, down there, um, you get to know the homeless people on your street because they are kind of your security system. So I just started writing really bad scripts on my own and I showed them to Lauren a little bit and she thought some stuff was funny. So I was like, oh, okay, all right, let me just keep going. And then I joined a group that did panels of TV writers and, and feature writers. And I would just go and like listen to these people talk. And it was a whole new language, you know, like with any career, you're just, there's lingo you don't know yet. And that really intrigued me. Side note, I watched so much TV as a kid. Every time I could like sneak away and watch TV, my dad wasn't really a fan and thought it was like a lazy way to spend your time. And I just loved it. Like every city I lived in, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was... The freshman spell air you know. So,
0: well, that is really profound. I mean, I know, I know it kind of sounds like a throwaway thing, but um, if there is something consistent place to place, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And if these stories can follow you anywhere and be the same anywhere. That makes a pretty big impression.
1: It's almost like I had friends in the new city before I had real human friends, you know, like, especially those half hour comedies that are really consistent. The characters don't change much. You know, you know, DJ on Full House is, you know, whatever. And everything's going to be okay by the end. And like, nothing felt okay. So the again, the escape and the outlet, but also the comfort of, wow, there's families out there that talk about what's going on and uh, process everything magically in a half hour show. Like this is amazing. But yes, it was uh, friends, it, virtual friends without having to start at the new school yet. Or even you know when the first few days of school were really, really hard come home and those shows are there for you in a weird, in a weird way. I mean, there's days where I just want to watch TV, which I've identified as one of my drugs, um, Mm. because I can just escape into a whole nother world. I can binge a show and be, you know, Nancy Botwin in weeds for a whole day. (laughs) And I don't have to face my own life, my own disappointments, uh, sadness that i can't go see my friends you know feel like i'm missing out on Mm -hmm. the lives of children who i love nieces and nephews friends kids yeah Uh, the irony of my favorite favorite thing caused me the most shame yet i have been with my I was with it enough, with myself, with my capital S self enough to figure out how to make my favorite thing into my career. So it's kind of this crazy interwoven, you know, bundles of yarn, sort of, and I can see the different colors all mixed up together. A mess, and I'm trying to pull them out so that the blue yarn can be its own ball and I can watch TV and enjoy it. And the purple yarn ball can be putting in the time to write TV. And then the green ball of yarn can be my self-talk, so that they're not so wrapped up in each other, so that they're not so messy, and so that they don't... Uh, so that they don't perpetuate the cycle of addiction and even though it's tv
0: for me it is
1: the cycle of addiction
0: yeah I think that's actually by design I'm now you know having been on the inside of a writer's room Mm -hmm. people are trying to write characters that an audience will care about and become invested in
1: yeah Yeah, and and relate to, you know, like if you, as shows go on like that, they tackle more and more real issues. And so you feel, or I felt, uh, yeah, really connected to these people and to know that they went through hardships and rose above or.
0: Yeah, well they, they, I don't know who they is, say that one of the best ways to Um, increase empathy is to be an avid reader of fiction Mm -hmm. and and I think well-written television because it's the same medium it's storytelling it's character development it can also really increase empathy I'm not talking about um you know game shows or um talk shows or um I was about to say The Bachelor, although I will say that the only time I ever saw The Bachelor, I I only saw it twice, same season, two episodes, and both times I cried hysterically because I was so upset Mm. that this was the way people felt about themselves and that they would choose to be in some kind of gladiator psychological gladiator sport with a bunch of other women for a diamond. you know and and like a prince yeah, right man, but a man that's set up to appear as if he's some kind of prince or or God. Um, mm-hmm. And so I I was just sobbed. I mean, sobbed i wound up calling someone and saying, <laughs> saying we shouldn't put this on television oh, God.
1: i i i don't watch those shows i have tried and i have similar feelings about them and it it hurts my heart that young girls are gonna see this and think this is like a lovely way to find a partner but not even more so to get famous like whatever that even means right now
0: Ugh. i had yeah. to think about that i the mm. two episodes i saw both of these women seem so sincere mm. in their love for this man they didn't know at all <laughs> i was so upset about that
1: uh, i i i find it funny that we are equally like disturbed or or upset um but for totally different different
0: reasons. Yeah. Uh, It hadn't occurred to me that they could have been acting and trying to get their own platform until you just said it.
1: Well, it's, it's, and you know, it's exposure. Like I live among a lot of these
0: people. So you had this connection with television plots, characters, and stories that was already personal and profound and then you started dabbling and when did things really kick into high gear for you so
1: i joined this group where they did panels and so i listened to all different kind of writers talk i went to like every event i could find where they where anyone was like educating people who didn't know <laughs> you know and you could blend in and not have to like admit what you don't know uh and I went to some event and sat next to some guy who was really outgoing. And he said, we should be Facebook friends, like whispered while this event's going on. I'm like, oh my God, don't draw any attention to us. Like wait till we're, you know, but he is, was a social person. So we became friends on Facebook. Two years later, basically to the day, I'm still like working my freelance, playing volleyball, trying to write, you know, going to events yes and he I see his name as the winner of a writing competition and I'm like why do I know that name so I go on Facebook as we do go on social media and cross reference and I'm friends with this dude and I'm like oh my god that's the social guy I met at that event so I reach out to him like congrats on this win and he's like here's my number call me right now I call him he tells me everything that's going on his pilot is getting produced by Issa Ray, who was not isa isa ray yet but people in the community knew her and he just told me everything that he had been doing and he became like my human friend resource you know and he was like email this guy send him your latest script it's for a writer's group i'm in it it's awesome da 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 so i email a script and i am so nervous because it's always nervous nerve-wracking to share your work when you know it's not to the level of the stuff you're, you know, you just know if, um, I guess it's like the American Idol thing. A lot of people don't know, but I was very aware of how terrible I felt like I was. And I still have that to an extent these days. But so I got into this writer's group and it was Tuesday nights from like seven to 10. And we like sat in a theater and actors read your script out loud to all the writers in the audience and there was a moderator and he would call you up afterwards and you would sit in front of the whole room and he would give you notes on your script mm-hmm. and i disassociated every time uh, <laughs> so i recorded it i never remembered anything that people said so he would give feedback then the writers and other actors in the audience would give feedback and you knew it was never going to be this script is great you're all done you knew it but it was so uncomfortable the first few times, especially, but I just kept rewriting and you know networking and doing things. And that writer's group mixed with the uh, group I joined that did like the panels, I came across this guy named Mickey Fisher, who used to be in the writer's group, who came to talk on one of the panels, who had just sold his show Extent. And, or actually I think season one had just aired. The Halle Berry Show on CBS, Outer Space, super cool. There had been a bidding war over the script. Like, oh my God, I'm like one degree away from this guy. He's talking on this panel. He is the nicest human. Oh my, he's just a great person. So I felt really comfortable afterwards going up to him and saying like, hey, I'm in this writer's group that you used to be in. And he was like, oh my God, here's my email address. Email me. So I did. So I emailed him and I emailed him when he said I could, you know, follow up. Um, So I said, uh, I don't know what any jobs on these shows are. Like, I don't know what they actually are, but if there's anything I could be considered for, like, I just would love to learn. And he would email me back. uh, You know, we're waiting to hear if season two gets picked up. Email me in a month. So I put it on my calendar and I emailed him in a month, you know, hope everything is going well with you, uh, just checking in on this, you know, but it wasn't just like, give me a job. I I just knew it was like probably, or I I didn't have a lot of connections to people who were working in television. And he was so nice that I just wanted to know him. And so eventually after probably four or five months, of emailing Uh, the squeaky wheel really does get the oil. Um, He emailed like, Hey, uh, we have a writer's PA position. We hired new showrunners, So kind of wiping the slate clean for season two. Can you come in today for an interview? So this is how this industry works. That was a Friday morning. So to back up a little bit, I had been running out of money, freelance writing took a dip uh we were coming up on the holidays this was like October um of when of 2014 so I had been interviewing for corporate jobs to do what I had done before and sell insurance but in LA and I was devastated so the night I got offered a job a friend of mine took me out and we drank margaritas and I don't drink that much and I got so drunk and went home and just was miserable and so upset, but like, okay, I'm gonna have money again and I can write on the side and be in my writer's group and all this stuff. And got that email the next morning from Mickey, like, can you come in today? I'm like, try not to throw up. (laughs) So I I picked the latest time in the day that was offered to me. And I go and have, hadn't really eaten anything all day because I was so worried that, you know, Uh, so I, and it was the best interview of my life. Like even better than Hazelden. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just felt like these are my people. Mm -hmm. And so that's Friday now at like four o'clock PM. I'm supposed to start the corporate job on Monday. I don't know if I got this job, this TV job. It's for like the lowest level assistant job. I had no idea what it was. And Saturday I'm sitting at a coffee shop writing with the guy who had won the contest. His name's Sean box. We call him boxy. Uh, Sitting there and I, I keep refreshing my email. I'm like, it's Saturday night. Like what am I doing? When am I going to hear from Mickey or the people I interviewed with Saturday evening at like six o'clock, I get an email. Congrats. You got the job. You start Monday. Like the room starts, the writer's room starts Monday. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. Oh, my god and I jump up and down you know I'm like jumping down and I like uh he's like all right you know it's a writer's PA job I'm like I don't care I don't care this is everything mm-hmm. so I email the corporate job and I like sorry for any inconvenience but I'm no longer available for this job and I'm so happy and so I went to a writer's room on Monday morning
0: So what was your first day like in the writer's room? So I show up early cause that's the kind
1: of person I am. <laughs> and uh, I just, am. It, uh, it's like, you know, when you go to school, even if you switch schools or you go from middle school to high school, you know what school is like. So having other jobs, I thought I would know what this was like enough to um understand what to do and luckily I had gotten like the rundown on the phone the night before but nothing prepared me for so my job was I learned to like get people lunch and so in the morning like take orders and call in the order and go pick it up and get it back by like a certain time that people want it and don't mess up you know (laughs) like Lunch is super important and it's a, a big thing for writers because it's like a perk. You get lunch, get to order it, it gets brought to you, it gets paid for. It's like a cool, really cool thing. And every writer's room is kind of different. But the first day in the writer's room, my office, my desk was like in an office across the hall from the writer's room. So I kept the door open and like listened and it was wild to see that playing make believe is a job. Wow. Uh, You know, it's not a fantasy job. It's still a lot of work. And if you're on a show that's in production at the same time, which we were uh, you, it's a very fast pace, like, you know, 18 hour days, We were on the Paramount lot, so everything shot there for the most part, Uh, everything that was like on stages and stuff. Uh, So driving a golf cart like around the lot and seeing like all kinds of like famous people and, but not having time to pay attention. Like you're just going, driving people and going from A to B and. uh, So the first day, I think I was overall like, this is so cool, but like, trying to play it cool, trying to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. Uh, Everyone else on the show had been in a room before. I was the only person. Uh, So it was, I had to like go get my badge picture taken. And I remember I was like, I had like done my hair, not what you want to do necessarily in a writer's room. Nobody, it's not a looks department kind of place. (laughs) Uh, So I remember like being exhausted at the end of the day because I so badly wanted to uh, you know, be good at the job and figure it out like right away. But of course it took like, the nine months of that first job to really get a grasp on how a show is made. Wow. And, and what the writers are really doing when you hear them you know, playing make-believe, like what it's actually- What about. are they really doing? so it depends on a showrunner like the structure that they want to start off with but uh in that first room there was a huge board like the uh dry erase board like the length of a conference room probably not but in my memory it was like that big uh and each episode had a column and each character had a row and the primary objective off the bat was to decide what was going to happen when in the season for each character. And obviously like stuff overlaps. So, you know, you're figuring out like if this person learns this information in the third episode and the fallouts in the third and fourth episode, what does that look like for Whitney versus um, Joe? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, So getting like a season arc for each person and plot and weaving it all together and then, Digging into each episode from there was how that room kind of went. And uh, so the writers are taking what the showrunner or showrunners uh, are saying that they want and pitching ideas based on that. So, you know, if you want a certain character to um, realize she wants to be a mother, like, what does that look like for me and pitching on that? And then listening to the showrunner's feedback and kind of like bumpers, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess bowling or something I pictured, uh, getting a better idea of what the showrunner wants based on what other people are saying Mm -hmm. and narrowing in on pitches that um, satisfy the desires of the showrunners. Wow. That's like a nutshell, you know?
0: So that was your first job in a writer's room but it, it wasn't your last. What happened after that?
1: Right. So after that, I slept for like a week uh, <laughs> and was worried about when I was going to get the next job. And I was on vacation with my family, like this trip we go on every year. And I got an email from a woman who worked in our same building in the Paramount lot, but I had only like met her in passing and. Uh, Talked to her casually, and she was like, "I'm working on this pilot um, with the guy I had been working with in the building, and we need a writer's PA." So I was like, "Okay, well, I guess I'm gonna be a PA again." It's a pilot, so it'd be shorter. If the show got picked up, I could maybe move up or what you know, depending on what happened. But uh, so I worked on a pilot for like three weeks, and then I got a call from the coworker from the first show who had given me the rundown on what to expect and she was like hey uh I got hired on this show and the showrunner likes to have two writer's assistants do you want to come be the other one and I was like well yes uh
0: because that's a yeah tell me the difference between a writer's assistant versus
1: okay that's I'm not sure how interesting this is going to be to people who don't care about tv but basically it's a hierarchy like anything else and it's like the writer's pa kind of handles lunch and coffee and the odds and ends of the office the copier all the stuff the writer's assistant sits in the writer's room at the table with the writers on a lot of shows sometimes at like a little desk in the corner sadly um i've done both but uh and you 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 basically take notes on what the writers are saying but you if you're good at the job you are parsing out what the real idea is you're not just like transcribing mm. and you are putting it kind of into little blurbs so that people remember what the conversation was some some showrunners want you to just basically dictate mm-hmm. I don't really enjoy doing that it's really hard and not using your brain you're mm-hmm. just a you know, like a typewriter. Uh, but for some showrunners, like the last show I worked on, uh, I was encouraged to pitch and be like a an equal member of the room, so that was really cool. So I worked on the Lemony Snicket, a series mm-hmm. of unfortunate events, um, as like a co-writer's assistant. And then through that same coworker, she is the best, I'm realizing more and more, uh, She's like a pivotal person in my early career. Uh, she had worked for Marty Knoxon before and Marty had, I think three shows on the air at the time, Unreal, Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. Oh, and then she was starting up Sharp Objects. So I uh, met her through this woman and started house sitting for her and then asked if I could, you know, on one of her shows, like in any capacity. And so I was the writer's assistant on Sharp Objects, which was like the the learning that happened and the pace and the the ease with which Marty runs a room. It was just like that changed everything for me.
0: I watched that show because of you. Hmm. Um, And that show was good. I mean, it was dark and so twisted, (laughs) but but it was such a good show, so well done. It's one of those shows
1: that gets almost like automatic respect when people um, either talk about it or see it on a resume. Um, everybody's always curious, you know, what was it like to work on Sharp Objects? So I'm like, well, hire me and I'll tell you all about it. Uh, after that, Marty sold uh, a show called Dietland to AMC, based on another book by Surrey Walker. Uh, super cool idea, nothing really else like it on TV. Marty's take on it was super cool. Uh, so I talked to Marty, you know, um, can I work on that show too? And she was like, absolutely. Like she doesn't have to think about that job, that, great. Uh, so I worked on that and then it was supposed to have a second season. So we did a pre-room, which is like 10 weeks of brainstorming and creating a pitch for the whole season for the network. So they can decide if they want to buy it or not or renew it. Uh, and unfortunately didn't get picked up for a second season. So then I didn't work for a little bit after that. That's what it was. So I just wrote and freaked out and did all the things. (laughs) And then through a producer on Sharp Objects, I got a job on the affair. I was the writer's researcher, Mm. which not every show has, but I was in charge of looking up everything in every script, every outline, Uh, the showrunner, wanted to have everything as accurately portrayed as possible. After that, like f- the next day after that ended, which was kind of wild, two, Oh, crazy fast paced experience. Um, I got a call from another person I worked with on Sharp Objects who said he was on Castle Rock and they need a writer's assistant. I was like, oh, I wanted like a week off, just some time. But I started working there like two days later and they were already mid-season. They were already up and running. They were already shooting in Boston and writing scripts and just the the train was on the track. So I just jumped right in and uh, ended up asking for a co-write of a script
0: and got it. Wait, I have to unpack that a bit because this was so brave and bold. And um, it's it's one of my favorite parts of the many brave bold things you've done in order to <laughs> the kind of life you really want. Thanks. Uh,
1: I think I think in any situation you can pay attention to where you can add the most value and not that you have to add value to be valuable uh, Mm -hmm. but there weren't a lot of female voices on the show there had been and contracts weren't renewed you know there's always like a kind of mix of what's going on and what people's schedules are and when they have to leave to go back to other shows and all this stuff but there was only one other female in the room when i came on board and i was like oh and, and the show and the second season of Castle Rock was a mother-daughter story. I was like, ooh, okay. So a series of things happened on the show, uh, kind of like behind the scenes stuff, and the opportunity just presented itself to me. I kind of angled myself as, you know, this can be another female voice, like I... Talk to the writer who had been assigned the episode first before I talked to the showrunner and just made sure he felt comfortable with it like you know that I think these opportunities that present themselves and you can add value in a way that wasn't already there that actually ends up benefiting you the most uh but you know I I I looked at like the whole landscape and went about it the right way and then I learned after I got the script that the person who had been in my job before who left was like demanding a script uh so I guess I say all that just it's uh it's kind of like my approach and not wanting it for myself but more wanting it for the betterment of the show like in conjunction
0: that makes also sense me. yeah that so there's a there's a boldness and there's there's the willingness to ask for what you want, but in the context of understanding how it would benefit the group. Yes. Got it. Yeah, so. So then you co-wrote. So then I co-wrote. An episode of television. Yeah,
1: it was. Uh, it yes it was so cool and also I struggle with like horror and jump scares like it's not really my natural thinking and I uh, wrote this scene in a hospital where it's like abandoned and all the lights are out you know the power's out and there's like creepy and so I I stretched I stretched and was challenged
0: and then yeah wrote um and I watched it, it was a very scary episode of television. So you, you did your job. Do did my job, thanks. So. What did it feel like to arrive in, you know, maybe not on with the type, the genre of television that you had imagined, but nevertheless to arrive in, in this spot of, of being a TV writer? yeah,
1: and since it was a mother-daughter story at its core, I mean, who doesn't have endless stories of conflict with their mom, and it, it, so that part was really cool, uh, it felt, uh, it felt like so many things, actually, it felt like finally, you know, in a sense, after years of being in rooms, but making like barely over minimum wage, and doing kind of everything for everyone else, and and paying your dues, and you know knowing you're working towards something, and then to finally get the thing you're working toward at least partially. So so that leads to then uh, imposter syndrome and feeling like it's not going to be good enough uh but then also getting that check and being like huh this changes everything because tv writers get paid like a pretty good amount of money Mm -hmm. and i've gotten residuals checks so money just shows up in the mail and that's pretty cool
0: (laughs) (laughs) If if, if i go watch this episode on all my streaming services do you make money See, I, I, I don't think so.
1: Just because it's streaming. like if you on demand watched it, if it was on like CBS maybe, but it's more like international sales of the show and that type of thing. I know I was like, I'm gonna let it play over and over on Hulu, like while I sleep and see if I get more money. <laughs> um, I'll let everyone know if, that, if I find out that that works. Uh, <laughs> but it felt, yeah, it felt validating. It felt scary and overwhelming, and then it felt really good to do it. It was another, you know, it's one of those things that isn't just all good. Like I just lost a friend, so I was grieving. So I was trying to not ignore, you know, not push that aside, um, but do a good job and hope that I can get hired on season three,
0: which the show was canceled. So there will not be a season three. This keeps happening. I vaguely remember you talking about um, the emotional fallout of having quote unquote arrived or having achieved or succeeded. Like you caught the carrot on the stick and then it was, um, it wasn't just joy and, and um, appreciation and pleasure it was that there was a lot of fear that came up and I think um and sh- you know insecurity and I think that that's really common anytime anybody puts themselves out there mm-hmm. and steps on the mark you know the creative mark mm-hmm. and swings at the ball, <laughs> this is a very weird mixed metaphor, but.
1: Well, and yeah, I follow, I follow. <laughs> uh,
0: and um, I don't, I don't know that that gets talked about quite enough. Um, amongst creative types, I have a, a friend and a colleague who wrote a book and it's mm-hmm. an amazing book. And the process of getting it edited and published has been, um, you know, he'll often send me updates about what's going on with a bunch of vomit emojis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even even if the thing that's going on is good, it's just like vomit emojis. <laughs> it feels sick because of how vulnerable and exposed you are in that space.
1: Yes, every time I had to turn in a draft of my part of that, my half of the episode. Yeah. It was like, I know I did my best, but vomit emoji. Like it is, I guess because I didn't go to school for writing, I didn't grow up being encouraged to be creative and share vulnerability that way. Uh, I think it, and not to take away from people who went to school and, you know, they have their whole set of it too, whatever it is for them. But I guess for me, it's, uh, so new also to embrace being a creative mm-hmm. and say, I am a TV writer. Like I'm a writer. I, th- this is how I want to make a living, but also what that entails is sitting in a writer's room, or on a Zoom writer's room, sharing ideally really vulnerable stories and even sometimes just sharing your perspective on something can feel really vulnerable if it goes against the grain or goes against the majority of the room or if the writer's room is set up to where primarily just the higher level people are encouraged to share or those are the ideas that get picked, uh, which can. So it, it, I think it's a lot of an internal battle to push through and share mm. because that's ultimately the job. And kind of deal with your stuff elsewhere. Mm. Ooh, how do you do
0: that? How do you deal with your stuff elsewhere?
1: I mean, I love therapy so, so much. Mm-hmm. Luckily I have a therapist who works with other people in the industry, so she understands like the hours and the need to change your appointment times can happen. Uh, therapy, how else do I deal with it? Uh, meditation and yoga, uh, journaling, talking to friends, um, I don't really have the ability to talk to my family about this kind of stuff, so I think that would be helpful for people who have that. It's probably really helpful because they've known you like your whole life and can, I don't know, encourage you in those ways. But what else do I do? I, I, I think I'm someone who is telling myself to... Just deal with it just sack it up just move forward uh you're fine you know Mm. rather than and and i think i'm getting better at identifying what i need in those moments versus what maybe i was told to do at different developmental ages or you know what's kind of ingrained in me a pattern wise so breaking those patterns and being compassionate with myself and uh, my therapist recommended treating myself like a, a grandchild, like mm-hmm. be the grandparent I didn't have and bring the child pardon me along on this path. And if, you know, kids want to wander off a path and you say, come back, come back over here. It's okay. None of that stuff is happening. Here's where we are, here's what we're dealing with at the moment. Uh, So that
0: has been surprisingly helpful and I think I resisted it. You know, it's so interesting because um, I I once heard the Dalai Lama speak and he, he said that when he works with people in the East, like in Eastern cultures, he can help them increase Um, you know, self-compassion or tenderness towards themselves by saying, you know, um, imagine that you are your own mother, like you as the mother, what would you, what would you say? What would you do? (laughs) And he said that he had to learn that in the West, he has to say, imagine that you are your own grandparent. (laughs) (laughs) Because he said that he learned that there were, that in the West, oftentimes, uh, people's relationship with their parents is is not uh, great or it is there's a lot of um, patterns of parents really demanding children be a certain way and function in a certain way and mm-hmm. present and achieve in certain ways. And he said, in a lot of Eastern cultures, you, you know the, the one or two children you're allowed to have, they're your whole legacy. And they're going to take care of you in their home when you're old. And so the relationship has a totally different um, context. And yep. children are, are treasured in a really different way. This isn't everywhere in the East, obviously, Perfect. and it's not everywhere in the West that people have a complicated relationship with their parents. But um, his observation was really striking to me. And I think it's fascinating that your therapist also notices that. And
1: I wonder, I didn't think to ask why grandparent and not parent, it made sense to me. And in a weird way, because I didn't really know my grandparents, I can imagine whatever I want. Whereas Mm -hmm. I know my parents. i you know, so it's more of a, it can be more of a fantasy, but yeah, I wonder if she... Yeah, I don't know. I also have been reading this book called Fear by Tishnath
0: Han. Tishnath Han, yeah.
1: Tishnath Yeah. yeah. Uh, fantastic um, for really breaking down in those moments, like exercises you can do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: So then, what next? What are you working on now? And how do you use all of these things, all of this emotional support to help yourself stay on? stay on the path.
1: Mm. So right now I have a script about uh, my first job after college, which was for the Girl Scout Council in St. Louis. And for the first time in my life, I was the only white person in a lot of rooms. And that was, I'm so grateful for that experience. And I only worked there for like a year and a half. So it wasn't, uh, you know, a five-year job that I would have known inside and out but so trying to capture what it's like to be a good person to be living your life to be a product of your environment and to be educated and uh wanting to do good things but just not having exposure to what it's like to not be white in this country. And I worked in St. Louis before Ferguson, before uh, Michael Brown was murdered, before all that. And so I can't even imagine what it's like now to be, or I guess I'm trying to imagine how to put that into a story that shows rather than tells Mm. and, and makes you question you know, do I have prejudice and do I have pieces of racism in me? It doesn't make me a bad racist person, Mm -hmm. but I'm coming up with real life situations that we've all been in where an entire subset of our culture has a totally different experience and they have been told that their experience is less than and they have to cater to our experience as white people. Mm. That's sort of oversimplified, but.
0: Well, oh, God, I would watch that show.
1: <laughs> I think it's, I, I'm trying to make it fun so that it's
0: not a drag. You know what I mean? So that like, you like Parks have... and Recreation meets, um, <laughs> meets Racism 101 or <laughs> like white fragility. <laughs> Something like that. I have been
1: very angry and passionate and everything about equal rights and Black Lives Matter. So to me, I have other scripts that are fun or dramatic or whatever, but this has been very important to me to figure out a way to show uh, just the simple things that we can change and open our eyes and let the other experience be real too. Mm,
0: I think you you have to trust what's important to you then if this is where the energy is Mm. so far in your life if you follow the energy it's it's actually led you where you're supposed to be going Mm. so I I want to encourage you to keep working on this particular project it feels really important to me hearing about it thanks So I like to wrap these conversations up by asking everybody. Oh, and you're you're a listener to the pod. <laughs> so I'm a listener to the pod. So I so you are know what ask you. <laughs> um, which is what is one thing you wish everybody knew? I wish everyone knew that race is a construct and
1: that because no two people are the same and no one wants to be lumped into some box that we cannot make assumptions about other people based on skin color, but more importantly, something that none of us chose. You know, uh, it, I, I just find it, I just wish everyone knew that individuality in the case of race, <laughs> I don't think individuality is always a great way to go, but uh, I, I, I just, I guess I wish that everyone knew we could look at everyone as who they are and how they treat people. And we don't know anything about someone by the color of their skin or the tattoos they have or where they're from or, uh, yeah. I guess that would be, I guess that would be something.
0: Why do you think that's so important to you? I mean, it. I agree, but I, I wonder why, why right now or in general, that's important to you. And, and I I'm, I imagine that it, maybe there's many layers to this, but um, I, I hear some of Well, I'm going to stop talking. Why, why do you feel like that's so important to you?
1: It's definitely layered. It's definitely nuanced. I guess the simplest answer is I know a variety of people. Uh, there was a time when I was mainly surrounded by people who looked like me, so like a much more homogenous environment. Um and in however you know, and getting to know people who are drastically different in every way. I just have been so surprised myself by who people are when I would never have guessed based on what we see. So I, I don't know if that's
0: really nailing it, but that makes sense. You're you're talking about um, <sighs> operating in the world without bias, and being willing to learn and grow and discover and change, and be become more by allowing people to be themselves, um, in their fullness, it helps all of us be ourselves in our fullness or wholeness. And that, that probably, I mean, I'm projecting my own opinion into this now a bit, but, um, that probably, you know, turns the temperature down on a lot of animosity between folks. Yeah. And gives more space, gives people more space to grow beyond the narrow definitions they've been handed in their lives. Yes, absolutely. And for
1: the I guess I'll speak frankly, Um, for white people, we have never really had to think outside of ourselves when going about our lives in the world. Like that, to me, that's what white privilege is. The color of your skin hasn't contributed to your hardships. And that doesn't mean you haven't struggled, but I, I find it only adds richness to everyone's life when we don't go into a situation thinking we know how another person is gonna think, behave, speak, uh, in anything. Uh, I don't, yeah, I mean, I also am in a biracial relationship. I play volleyball under normal circumstances um, with every type of person. I mean, it's LA, so literally every type of person. And the more I talk to people on other teams, the more I have downtime with people. Uh, You know, obviously writer's rooms too. People, ideally, it's a collection of various minds. Um, Just the more I learn and the more I, I'm given permission to be all the aspects of myself. I don't have to adhere to a definition. Uh, so I just, yeah, I wish everyone knew that we could, it, it's gonna do a lot, it's gonna take a long time. It's not just gonna be like do away with, but we can do away with that aspect of our society and be better for it. And I don't know if that, I don't know if that thought is anywhere in our country right now as a whole, like that there is something on the other side of all this, like we're going through all this for a reason. And I think, okay, so I'm getting to it now. So this is why I'm so passionate about it. I I guess I see sort of that is the light at the end of the tunnel. That's what we're working toward. God, I hope so. Me
0: too. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you for walking us through this courageous journey in general, and then, and then, thank you for leaving us with a really optimistic, hopeful wish.
1: <laughs> Fantasy land, liberal bubble, out here in LA.
0: Well, uh, I, I don't know yeah. I mean, everything everything that we enjoy right now every piece of liberation that we enjoy collectively I, I at one point was a fantasy so you, you gotta push for it yeah that's true <sighs> okay <laughs> I love you thank you for doing this love you. oh thank you for having me Thank you, thank you to my dear friend, Corinne, for walking us through the wisdom of learning to listen deeply to yourself. I am always a bit blown away by her commitment to her own inner integrity. As her friend, this never ceases to bless me. This hidden world is one of the most important terrains we can learn to travel. There's no promises on that road but it is often the most rewarding. Join us again next week when I talk to my new friend, Laura Fanucci, about the twin hidden worlds of grief and joy and how they are inseparable. The hidden world is produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written by David Gomez. And I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to each other and yourselves.